Good morning. It was a hot one. was hot, very hot, and nowhere less so than in Calorglan, where King Puck was up and down more times than was seemly for any mountain goat. Things kicked off on Tuesday's live line with a call from Katrina Lowry, who runs an animal sanctuary. Also on the line, chairperson of Puck Fair, Declan Falvey. I am not a killjoy, I have to say that. I am going to speak for everybody who has concerns. So first of all, I'm, I'm going to come across teachery for a few seconds until Joe cuts me off. But um, just to point out the freedoms, uh, the goat has to be free from discomfort, freedom yes. from stress, freedom to express normal behaviour, Declan, and freedom from thirst. I know you'll take care. I heard you give lots of cabbage to the goat and all that, but let me just say something. Metal radiates heat. As my friend, who also runs the sanctuary with me, pointed out, they are only allowed to stay up for so many hours on scaffolding in this heat. So now... Builders, the you, goat, humans, humans. Humans, yeah. yes. So next of all, the water up there will heat up. There is an amp and speaker underneath the stand as pictured down through the years. How can that goat get away from something that is not normal to him? If if an animal out there, or a goat up the mountain, is distressed, he gets to run away from the stressor. He is denied that freedom. This, this is not me. I'm not going to go hug a tree and pick daisies after this. I am talking about animal welfare legislation. For a response, here's Declan. I, 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 I was wondering, was I going to get a, word to, a chance to come in at all uh, there, Joe? But they're <sighs> saying if I was hoisted up for three days and left suspended, I said my, my wife might be quite happy to get rid of me for three days and hopefully I might, that I might never come back. But anyway, uh, uh, all you, I can say is... Would you take is, the place of the goats, have, Excuse you me take... now. Excuse me. <laughs> OK, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, we have been running Puck Fair in Killarland for over 200 years. We are very proud of the traditions that we uphold. We are very proud that we have uh, an unblemished record of looking after the welfare of the goat. I know the previous custodians of the Tuhulans used to look after the goat in the 50s when I was a young fella, and I've never heard of a story of a goat being mistreated in Kilarda in all that time. And we have no 
we we will not uh, allow the goat to be mistreated. We will do everything in our well, power. Well, it's, if well, that means uh, take, <sighs> taking the goat down uh, a level, if it means putting a fan on board, uh, oh, that will be done as well. We will make sure we will make sure that we look after the goat and make sure that he gets back. And you can be sure, Katrina, that he will find his herd in in jig time when he gets back up into the mountain. And the debate was on. Here is Suzanne. I mean, I'm all for tradition and they can have their mm-hmm. fare and everything, but I think it's just appalling that, that, that you would subject an, a wild animal for three days, three nights up in the air. OK, they say he's well looked after and everything, but he must be very stressed. And I'm not and one how of the do you, how do you know, Su- But how do you know, Suzanne? I don't know, but I mean, it would... Listen, you go up there for three days and three nights and see how you feel. You know, yeah, but I, I, don't, I, I think... Yeah, but I don't, I don't enjoy living wild on mountains. No, I understand that, of course. Uh, and, and yes, the animal is a wild animal and all the more reason that it, it, it would more than yeah, likely okay. be stressed. Countering that, Sean, who had been to Puck Fair many times with his own children. I brought my two girls there on four different occasions uh, when they were quite young, brought them to games as well. Um, they absolutely loved it and so did I. And what do they um, love about it, Sean? They just the, love it. They just the atmosphere the rural, and... the ruralness of it, the fair, the ice cream, the day out or the days out. All I'd say is this, you know, the best to look to him tomorrow, I hope to get the fan system working for him and the cool water system. Well, I don't know. Suzanne, what do you think of that idea? Declan did suggest it might, I think, they I might think put the, a fan the gentleman in. Is, I beg your pardon. I think the gentleman is confusing the issue slightly because we're talking about the goat. The, he said his children enjoyed the fair, and I'm sure the fair is, is marvellous, and as, as somebody has said, it's changed a lot and is very well run yeah. now. But we're talking about yeah. the goat. And back to the goat, Declan was resolute that King Puck would stay up. From our perspective here, uh, the, the, there's an independent, independent vet who looks after the welfare of the goat. He ends in his report to the veterinary department and they're quite happy that he is being well looked after, well cared for by the committee. And has, and, has, uh, has a goat ever been up there? We catch him about a month before. I know that, but has sure a goat ever is. been up there for in 30 degree temperatures? No, but if, if, if it means that we have to take him down to a lower level to inspect him, we'll do whatever it takes. But when will you take, I'm sure will you take him down? The, I'm sure there has been puck straw in the past, over the past 200 years, that has been sweltering heat, and there's never, I've never had a case of the goat dropping dead yet. Not dead yet. And Joe hopped off the fence, landing firmly on Team Goat. The pubs are open at three o'clock in the morning. Your two main, you have your three main sponsors, you call them the double diamond sponsors. Of your three main sponsors, two of them are drink companies. Why is that? In a family, <laughs> in a family festival. Family friendly, yeah. It is family oh. friendly. And then we stand over that. Uh, every child here in Canaldon, every child in the McTerry area loves to come to Puck Fair. And they don't have, uh, um, their memories are not, uh, not of the double diamond sponsors. Their, their memories are of going to Bird Bazaar, uh, going to the stalls in the town and having a great yeah. time okay. with, with their friends. But Declan, they get to go home, though, Declan. No, they get a, a choice. Let's a proper picture here of what Puck Fair is all about. This is all very <laughs> negative Well, you're getting the Declan. Well, hang on, hang on, Declan. Declan, you're most most Declan. Oh, come on now, Declan. Get a, get a know, group. Sorry, get a group here. You're protesting. No, you are. You get real. You're protesting. There's no one lined up. There's no one lined up. These are people calling in. You've been on the programme since a quarter to two. You've had your fair share. You're there to answer every single opportunity. Don't be playing the victim. You're not a victim here. Don't the victim here. The victim here is the goat. Who are you kidding? Back out of this break. Well now, 
That was Tuesday. But by Thursday, as temperatures soared, King Puck was down. On Friday's Morning Ireland, John S. Doyle parsed the papers. Heat waves got our goat, says the star headline. Too hot to trot, says the sun. But then, like a demented version of the Kerry dances, King Puck was back up again. Here's journalist Anne Lucy in Calorglan with Philip. Now, King Puck is back up. It's hard to keep track of him. Probably easier if we were on the McGillicuddy Reeks, his natural habitat. But he was put back up when the temperatures um, dropped last night. So he was there for... um, There was a very, very um, big concert... Uh, Declan Ernie on the in, on the street, so he would have been listening in to the concert last night. The puck goat would have been oh, now yes. whether he's going to come down or not. But there's all sorts of questions being raised in Kerry about the future. Not not uh, discussion, I suppose. The questions seem to be raised from outside the county. That is has to be said, and. The, the 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 discussion is about the future of Puck Fair because, uh, like it or loathe it, it is part of the tradition of Kilaglen and Kilaglen isn't Hampstead or Wimbledon and they do put a goat up and they have looked after the goat for the last hundreds of years. So there's a lot of feeling about... Oh, indeed, it certainly seems feeling is running high. And Lucy, thank you very much. Installation or incarceration, text us 5155. That was Friday morning, 11am. By the afternoon, he was down again. Here's the aforementioned Declan Nurney with Joe. So Declan, the the goat has been liberated. Yeah, he's been liberated. You know, there has to be a happy medium, I'm sure, somewhere in the middle of all of that there. Look, I'm not on the committee of... I know uh, that, I know that. And, and, uh, you know, I only joined in with the story of it sort of yesterday, uh, Joe, but Mm -hmm. I would be definitely... against animal cruelty if all sorts being honest about it. Yeah, but do you do you think Yeah, do you think like do you think the goat would pay into a Declan Nerney concert if they had the choice? (laughs) Because one one is very now one is very loud music right underneath him and two it's a it's an incredible light show when he should be asleep at ten o'clock at night in his bed. Yeah, well I'm sure, you know, I suppose like you have a point there. Uh, Joe, you know you you can't speak for the for the poor animal. Exactly, isn't you know, that exactly the, the point? I suppose there is like there, there is that point in it. Well, for this year anyway, King Puck is down. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I know. I'd say you're only wrecked. And if you thought all of that was quite heated, you might want to hose yourself down for this one. On Monday, just after 10am, Philip spoke to Kevin McPartlin, who is CEO of Fuels for Ireland. Now, they are the industry body representing oil importers and distributors, and they're planning on bringing a legal challenge to the government's climate action plan, specifically, as Philip put it, the plan to reduce energy consumption. This is how it started. Kevin, are you in the fossil fuels industry really seriously thinking about suing the government for taking climate action? No. And I have to correct what you said. You said that, that this was, a, this was a, a challenge to the reduction in energy consumption. It's absolutely not that. What it actually is, is a challenge to the government holding the oil industry responsible for a lack of reduction of consumption in the transport sector. And that's something over which we have no control. Which, which amounts to no, a it challenge doesn't, it doesn't to the reduction. Finish. It does. No, what it amounts to is, is very clear. So there is, there is a real need to reduce the energy consumed 
in the transport sector, and there is also a need to reduce the emissions from, from, the, from the need that does continue. But what isn't fair is to expect that oil consumers to pay, for, pay the bill for the government failing to meet its obligations. And therefore, you are going to take a challenge against the Energy Efficiency Obligation Scheme. Yes. So you so are the, taking a challenge against the Climate Action Plan. No, Philip, no. It's very specific. And if you let me explain what, what this means. So if we are to reduce the energy consumption from transport, you, I know, are a strong advocate for this, know this. The best way to do that is to increase uh, reliable, uh, safe public transport and make it available more broadly. The second thing that you can do is increase provision of active transport, cycle lanes, make pedestrian uh, transport more effective, all those things. They are the things okay. that can so reduce you, so the energy use. you're saying you can't do anything in this no. sector? You're, you're not, you're, your hands are tied, you're unable to introduce any efficiencies whatsoever? Well, could you suggest any that we could? Do you know what? And I'll come to this. Off the top of my head, I could probably give you 10 right now, but that would bore people to tears. So we'll give you four or five. Okay then, Philip, because yes, listing 10 energy-saving methods could indeed be deathly dull. But in this instance, it was sparky. The first idea that strikes me is uh, BWG, the company behind SPAR, recently uh, succeeded at some very, very impressive fuel reduction energy saving capacity by looking at, with the help of logistics consultants, the way that they do their business. So they're they a controller of a fleet. We're not controllers of fleet. Aha, but you could pay, you would be allowed to pay to offset other people's uh, fuel consumption by sending, by paying for logistics consultants to go into haulage companies and say, you should do this instead of that. And, and that's, that's actually something that we do, uh, as we do. Uh, so under the existing... So, 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 so you're, you're saying that it can be done. You're saying that an efficiency can be achieved by sending in fuel consultants, yeah? Marginal gains can be achieved. Okay, We're talking that, about 50%, 50% of, of, of the transport uh, energy use is expected to be reduced. We don't okay. have that capacity. Well, now hang on a second. Nothing like No, no, no. You've, you've just agreed with me that it can be done. The saving might be marginal, but it can be done. So let's just bank that one in the plus column if we can. Bank day. And here are more top tips for the oil industry man, whether he wanted them or not. Car charges. You could be paying for, for car charges uh, for EVs around the country, couldn't you? We have more EV charging on Irish forecourts than in any member state of the European Union already. But still not very much. We're talking about one charger in a handful of forecourts. That's not correct. It's not one charger. It's, it's hundreds of charges. Uh, and, and the, There's not hundreds of chargers in every forecourt. There's one no, or maybe hun- two chargers. OK, there are hundreds of chargers available. And it is true to say that we have more than any other member state in, in the European Union. Just because we're better than everybody else doesn't make us good. I'll, I'll finish the point I was going to make, Philip. Uh, the other thing is that the biggest problem in actually increasing the network of, of EV charge, because we're really keen to do that, is the electricity supply network. Again, something of which we don't okay. have control. Again, that's not true because you don't it have, absolutely to, is you don't have to do it on forecourts. You could pay for it to happen elsewhere where the electricity supply is not actually an issue, isn't it? So we, we, we're paying to, to install EV charging points on sites that we don't own. Yeah, I, I, yes, exactly. How, how can we guarantee that Buy we can them. do that? By the sites. I'm saying, that, but you're telling me that these efficiencies can't be achieved. And that actually doesn't reduce I'm, energy I'm, consumption. That would reduce emissions, but it wouldn't reduce consumption, so it would have no relevance to this Because you can also, you, you're allowed to offset one against the other. And there was more. What about the promotion of things like car sharing apps? You could do that. Philip, are you, are you asking us to undertake the state's policies? 
Yes, because you are allowed to do things. You are allowed to achieve efficiencies under this energy efficiency obligation scheme. That's what they've said in Brussels. We want to see how these industries can achieve efficiencies. Philip, if I were to ask you what is the, the, the single greatest impact that we could have in reducing energy consumption in transport, you would say that it's to, it's to invest in tra- public transport and to active yeah, transport. Yeah, it's true. We and don't, is- the rest is tinkering around the edges. Um, still, these are efficiencies that might not get us the whole way there, but the things that you don't seem to be keen on doing. No, we're absolutely, Philip, this isn't true. We're absolutely keen on doing them. We have delivered, we have exceeded our targets under the energy efficiency obligation scheme since it was introduced. Okay. What about eco-driving courses? You could pay for members of the public to go on eco-driving courses, couldn't you? Theoretically, we could. But, 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 Philip, what you're talking about... And that about, would achieve efficiencies, not just theoretically, tiny, but actually. Tiny efficiencies. We're looking at absolutely massive savings here and they are impossible to achieve. They're not tiny so what, savings. I mean, if you drive at 10 miles sorry, an hour less, at you're some achieving point, 25%. It would, be, it would be useful to be allowed well, to finish a sentence. No, no, no see, you doubted at the start that there was anything, that, any efficiencies that you could achieve. No, I'm I just pointing didn't out say that. To you, I I'm just pointing say out there were none. There Let me give you another one. And on it went. But we will leave it there. Kevin McPartlin of Fuels for Ireland with Philip. Cold compress, darkened room. Back in a bit. Welcome back. The Zodiac Killer was one of the most notorious murderers in US history and the subject of the very first in a new season of The Dock on One. December 1968, Benicia, California. It was just before Christmas and a 16-year-old girl was getting ready to go out. Her name was Betty Lou, and a 17-year-old boy called David had asked her out on a date. That Friday evening, David picked Betty Lou up to go to a concert in their high school. After the concert, Betty Lou and David drove to a secluded place, a lover's lane at a reservoir called Lake Herman on the outskirts of the small, quiet town. There were no witnesses to what happened next, but at some stage that night, the two teenagers were shot dead. The next day, TV reporters spoke to police. Do you have any idea what uh, the possible motive might be for this killing? We have no motive at this time. Over 50 years later, and these murders have been front and central in one Irishman's life. Betty Lou Jensen, who was shot in the first murder, he shot her while she was running. All the bullets were going down the right-hand side of her back. In the late 1960s, a serial killer was at large in the San Francisco Bay Area. He terrorised the community, murdering people apparently at random. He killed at least five people in the San Francisco area of California. In fact, by the time the killing spree ended, He claimed to have murdered 37 people over an eight-year period. He gave himself a name, the Zodiac, and he's never, ever been caught or conclusively identified. The Zodiac killer taunted the police with letters and riddles that he sent to San Francisco newspapers, demanding that they print them. I want you to print this cipher on your front page. If you don't do this, I will go on a kill rampage Friday night. We're going to tell you a story about how a man from County Louth started investigating the curious Irish connection to one of the suspects in the cold case of one of the most notorious and mysterious serial killers in America. It all falls back to this alibi pretty much that he had. From the documentary N1, 
This is Zodiac's Alibi. Slightly scary and also fascinating, compelling stuff from the Dock on One. Back in the news this week, housing, and in particular, renting. According to a new report from daft.ie, rents have reached an almost record high, almost 13% higher than last year, and only 716 homes across the country up for rent, compared to 2,500 this time last year. Economist and author of that report, Ronan Lyons, joined Rachel on Morning Ireland. It's the pace of increase that is so concerning. A 12.6% increase in, in rents nationally is the biggest increase we've seen year on year since I started doing these reports over 15 years ago. Um, it, it means that rents are rising at a faster rate, even though the base is already higher. And of course, as we know all too well at this stage, supply, or lack thereof, is the driver. The availability figures are simply unprecedented. Having so few homes available to rent on the open market at any point in time, um, there's nothing like that. In, in, in fact, in Dublin, we can go back 20 years and there's nothing like that over 20 years. And while there are new rental homes getting built, in particular in, in the Dublin area, the speed at which they're getting built doesn't match the fall off in supply. Uh, uh, somebody like me would say, well, we need lots of new rental homes, so we want to keep the existing rental stock and add to it. We're, we're not in that place. We're losing some of the traditional rental stock. And the question is, whether the new, uh, the, the newly built rental stock is, is enough to keep up and it looks like the answer is no. But surely the tide will have to turn at some point. So talk to us then about the figures on the other side of the equation, so to speak, about the number of properties under construction or indeed the number of properties at the planning stage. What do the figures there tell us? The silver lining here is is that the pipeline for the really for the for the the rest of the decade looks strong, as in the total number of homes that are either under construction, um, or for which planning has been granted, or for which a planning application has been submitted, or indeed which are at pre-planning, which are known about. So sometimes these would be discussed in the media. When you add up those four categories, there are about one hundred and fifteen thousand rental homes. Um, uh, in in the pipeline. To put that in context, over the last five years, the country has added uh, somewhere between seven and ten thousand rental homes in the same sector. Um, that's not enough to offset the fall, as I, as I discussed, but it gives you a sense that what's supposed to come over the next, say, seven or eight years is a multiple, about ten times or maybe more, um, of what we've seen over the last five years. That's the kind of scale that the country needs, given the shortage of rental homes. Uh, I would say it's not the only thing. Um, so it's it, it, uh, these are these are regular market rental homes. The country also needs um, non profit rental housing, whether it's through approved housing bodies or local authorities. And of course, it needs um, homes for owner occupiers, but it's not really an either or. Um, But that piping has increased. And in particular, what has increased is the number under construction, which is encouraging. This time last year, about 9,300 homes in the rental sector were being built. Now about 23,000 are being built. So that will help. But unfortunately, the scale of that, um, even building those, say, nearly 25,000 homes, suppose they all come over the next 12 to 18 months, um, and that's probably a little ambitious, but but let's give it that. Um, That's only 25,000 rental homes in a sector that has lost about 100,000 homes over the last 10 years. And later, also on Morning Ireland, we heard from Mike Allen, Advocacy Director with Focus Ireland. And while there is a sinking sense of deja vu about all this, he said that he felt things were reaching 
an unprecedented pressure point. People know Focus Ireland. Focus Ireland are not an alarmist organisation. We don't talk about tsunamis. We don't sort of try and scare tactics. We're evidence-based. We are looking for lasting solutions. But we've got to really put up a red flag and say, yes, we support housing for all. Yes, we support working with government to solving the problems. But it's very clear that what we currently have on the table isn't enough and it's not moving fast enough to deal with the scale of the problem that we're, we're facing. And we really need to ramp up things from measures to keep landlords in the market, actually deal with this vacancy issue. 2016, we were saying that the vacant housing units were that low hanging fruit. It's still almost exactly the same, despite some really hard work mm. by some of our colleagues in you know, Peter McVeary Trust and local authorities really worked on that. But it, the progress is marginal compared with what we actually need to achieve. From Morning Ireland. This week, the death of a woman whose music had brought a lot of pleasure. talented and rather lovely Olivia Newton-John. And there were many tributes on the radio to the singer and actor. But it was a clip from her 2019 interview with Ray Darcy that we will go with. It's both moving and curiously upbeat. Well, I've come to realise that we're all going to die at some point. Um, (laughs) It's a thing to come to grips with, isn't it? But we are. And just when you have a cancer diagnosis, I think it just puts it in your face that that this is a possibility. It could happen sooner than you'd hoped. But I think it makes you live every day fuller and I think it makes you appreciate every moment more. So I think in a way, I always try to find the positive in every situation. It's a gift for me because I wake up every day and I'm grateful to wake up every day. And are you spiritual? Or what, do you, what do you believe in an afterlife? I am. I think it's everything's possible. Right. And I've always... <laughs> I chant with my Buddhist friends. I pray with my cow girlfriend, Audrey. She was a strict Catholic and I went to Mass with her. Um, I I respect everyone's belief system and I think that whatever gets you through, whatever makes you happy and and makes you less fearful of death because I think that's what a lot of us are. That's why we choose a faith because I think it helps us with that greater fear because we're probably the only species that are aware of our mortality. It's all possible. How could it be this beautiful and not something greater than us, right? Whatever that is. What a lovely woman. And on drive time, her death prompted a discussion around the language that we use about and around people with cancer. Here's Education and Engagement Manager at the Irish Cancer Society, Aoife McNamara. We're looking at cancer language in terms of not just daily interactions, at the media, at, you know, at how people have that conversation in print, on social media, wherever it is, because for the cancer patient, it's impossible to get away from the disease. Everybody knows somebody who has cancer. Mm. It's in the media every single day. You know, 
Today, it's all about Olivia Newton-John. Tomorrow, it will be about another celebrity. And that's really, really distressing because they just don't get a break from that disease. So that lang- for that reason, the language is very impactful on them. So then, how best can we talk about something so personal and so difficult? It's important to say there is no right thing to say. You know, this is not prescriptive. Every patient is different. But there are things that you can do that can, that can help. I mean, you know, let them lead the conversation. Use the language that they're using. If they're referring to themselves as a cancer survivor, yeah. don't start talking to them about being a cancer sufferer, for example. Okay. Try not to interrupt them or start telling them about someone that you know who has cancer and they went through this and they experienced that. And importantly, try not to be overly positive. And I get that urge to want to make it better, but that's not giving the person space. You know, if you talk to professionals, if you talk to our colleagues on our support line, the number one thing they do is they listen. And that sounds like a really simple thing to do, but it's actually incredibly difficult because you're just sitting with the person and letting them dictate the conversation, regardless of how negative or how emotional or how frightening it might be. Mm-hmm. So and I would say to people, as much as possible, try listen. to listen. Aoife McNamara of the Irish Cancer Society with Cormac on Drive Time. Meanwhile, on Arena, a sound and sculpture exhibition which is coming to the Botanic Gardens in Dublin from Johnny Easterby. And he spoke to Sean about the recordings he's made and drawing on his own Australian roots and one bird in particular, the kookaburra. It's like a big kingfisher, you know, the carnivorous kingfisher eats, eats snakes and lizards. And it has this very iconic laugh, which has been, I mean, you, you probably know that. It's like, it's actually Disney would use it to just sort of make you feel like you're in the jungle, even though it's the Australian bush. And there's a song called Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree, which was like a, a kind of um, campfire song for kids that was from Australia in the 1950s. And we used to sing this around campfires when I was a, when I was a kid. So I put it into forty different speakers that are spread out over a landscape. So and people it, will hear that as they walk around. Yeah, the and it, be- it becomes this minimalist kind of riff as it, as as you hear it. But it, it's very very hypnotic and quite quite disturbing, and beautiful. Beautiful and ever so slightly melty brains. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Catherine, sweaty palms, courtesy of Keith Barry, who hacked not only into her brain, but also possibly her bank account. Further, I want you to focus on your PIN number, okay? Don't, ah, now, come on. <laughs> don't say it, just think of it. And people at home can listen to this. Say My just, PIN number? Yeah, your PIN number, okay? And say no to everything. Is it a zero? No. One? No. Two? No. Three? No. Four? No. Five? Six? No. Seven? No. Eight? No. Nine? No. Zero. Is no. the first digit a zero? No. Is it a zero? No. Is it a zero? No, I'm going to go to the first digit. is either an eight or a nine, but I'm not sure. With you. I'm going to go with a nine. Be honest now, the first digit is a nine. Is that correct? <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Okay, good. Focus on the second digit Don't of your pin. Don't be it You can change it after the show. You can change it now. There's enough banking issues to be uh, to be dealing with now. I have Fo- to go change my pin number. Focus on the... Okay, try not to focus on the second oh, digit. God. Forget the second okay. digit. Eliminate that, okay? Okay. Okay, interesting. You looked up the top right when I said forget the second digit. You actually automatically third, thought of the third digit, didn't you? You did yes. that in your head. Yeah, see, we tend to do that as we're pattern followers and pattern seekers. And because of that, you're a real pattern follower. So you, the third digit is the same as the first digit. So the third digit's also a nine. Is that correct? <laughs> I definitely think it's time for a break. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I won't call out loud your pin number. Give me a piece of paper if you don't mind a pen. We'll do it this way, okay? But you just have to be honest. Okay. Okay, focus on the whole, all of the numbers, but I won't call it out on air. 0123456789909012222212. Okay, good. Be honest. I'll show you, but I'm not going to show anybody else. I won't even show the gallery, so you don't have to change it afterwards. Be honest. Is that your pin number? That is my pin number. <laughs> Number. And we've also got camera in the studio here, oh, so I'm going to have to change it. I'm going to have to change it anyway. Um, Keith Barry, it is always a pleasure to see you. Well Thanks. done. Um, and oh, thou art crafty, sir. Over on Bowman on Sunday, Maeve Binchy, who continues to delight. And among her many talents, eavesdropping, shameless eavesdropping. Once we were, we were in a restaurant in Cornwall and I said to Gordon, I'm very sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to stop talking entirely, just read the menu at me. And he said, why? And I said, because the couple of the next table are splitting up. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hear it. I have to hear it. <laughs> and they were talking about custody of the dog, I swear it. <laughs> they'd been there for the whole week and I actually nearly fell off my chair trying to get into their table to hear them. You can hear so much. And turns out if she couldn't get close enough, she could lip read. Yes, she actually learned to lip read, which was something that came back to bite her when the ladies who lynch came out to judge. Once I was giving a talk to, I, I, well, to a group, she said vaguely, a group, and there was, just in case the people might be here, and they were all lining up after this lunch to have their uh, books signed. I was terribly nervous. I was like, I'm actually very nervous. It doesn't, I don't sound, I sound as if I'd be talking here forever. I'm very, very nervous of speaking and making a public speech. And I was so afraid I was going to be sick that I didn't eat anything. And I said to the waitress, whom I knew, and she said, you'll have to eat something, mate. Of it's all free, she said. And I said, I know, I know, I know. But I, I wait till afterwards, wait till I've made my speech, and then you could bring me a plate of, of cheese and biscuits. And she said, that'll be fine. So anyway, I was fine. There was a big queue coming up, line coming up to meet me. And about halfway down the line, I saw two very elegant women. And one of them was saying, would you look at her eating the cheese and biscuits? <laughs> a plate of cheese and biscuits after that meal. Is it any wonder she's the size? <laughs> but she was like way across the room. And I'd seen it as clearly as if she'd said it into my ear. So I fumed a bit about that. I fumed only, I mean, because you know, you, you like to hear good of yourself. This was not good. So I said, I'm fumed. And so when she came up, and these two women, and they were saying, they were full of plumos, you see, and said, aren't you lovely? Aren't you lovely? It's lovely to see you. You look so well. And I said, and you mustn't worry a bit about the cheese. <laughs> You mustn't worry, but I had it instead of the dinner as well as, uh, not, not as well as it. And their faces were scarred, and I loved it. I was delighted. I was delighted. I was so childish, really, when you think of it. The fantastic Maeve Binchy, as heard on Bowman on Sunday.
And fellow writer Claudia Carroll joined Catherine to talk about her new novel, The Love Algorithm, all swiping and blind dates. And she knows of what she speaks. And she told us some horror stories from the dating trenches. And this story, although not her own, forms the basis of the book. It features a well-heeled lady in her 40s matching with a seemingly equally well-heeled man. Steady yourself. This guy suggested to this very successful woman, could we meet for dinner? And he suggested quite a high-end snazzy Dublin restaurant, I won't say the name, but one of these restaurants that ew, you wouldn't be going there every day of the week. It's like for roundy birthdays. Yes, and yeah. Once for, a year. Yeah, if that. Or, and, yeah. you know, at, at, at one of the lower end price points for the bottles of wine would be like 80 euros, like pricey. Right. So she was thinking, oh my God, I think this fellow might actually like me. I mean, he, this is his suggestion, not me. So... She went along and she was all doing the things you do on any first date. And it's a steakhouse restaurant. So your man was ordering, you know, beef and chicken and duck and pork and all of this. And she's vegetarian. So she's like nibbling on a old corner of lettuce. (laughs) And he was drinking, ordered quite a pricey bottle of wine and she's driving. Sorry, I just need to even, um, the fact that he chose a steakhouse for a vegetarian on her first date. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, but you know how it is in faith. You think, okay, well, that's something that could be sanded down over time. You know, maybe he didn't read that bit of her profile. But uh, so he was ordering wine and she's driving. So she's on the water. And anyway, the meal was finished and they were getting on. They were actually getting on. The meal finished and he went up, uh, excused himself and said, I'll be back in a sec. And she's, you know, the way we all do when we're on our own at a table for two, you get out the phone yeah. and you start texting Try the pals. Try not to look awkward. Well, you text the pals going, yeah. it's going really well. I think this could turn into this something. This might have this legs. Might have legs. Hmm. The waiter came over and very politely said, Madam, just to let you know, uh, you did. we did tell you that we needed the table back at X time. And she said, oh, OK, uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, the gentleman that I was with, is he, did you see him? Like, is he in the bathroom? And the waiter went down and checked and came back and said, uh, no, no, not there. So she went, oh, OK. And there's, you know, queues of people glaring at her, waiting on their table. Oh, and she God. went out onto the street and looked up and down just in case he was on a call. She knew there was in her an heart emergency. Of You're mm. ahead of me. You're mm. ahead of me. But just in case, you know, maybe he was having a sneaky cigarette and gone. <sighs> that is shocking. Claudia Carroll with Catherine. And that brings us to the mating habits of spiders. Yes, it does. Bear with me. Here's Collienus of Trinity with a twitchy and squirming Oliver. The way the spiders work is the females stay put and the male has to go looking for the females. They're generally a lot smaller than the females. So when they are off wandering, that's when we see them. Each species will have a different way of trying to impress the female by doing a little drum or a dance or pinging her web. Or some of them even bring like flies as as little gifts for the females. So it's it's all very interesting and varied. It's like uh, Love Island for arachnids, but uh, they all have their little talents. Uh, and then once the mating has occurred, then she'll start fattening up, produce the egg sacs. They'll either hatch out if it's warm enough or stay there over winter and hatch out in the spring. And then the cycle starts again. The circle of life. And if that sounds lovely, it is. Unless, of course, you're the male spider. He'll try and move on to another female, but generally she'll make a snack out of him. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty tough life Hence being a male spider. the female of the species yeah, exactly. is more deadlier than the male. Exactly. Um, Unforgiving. Take that restaurant dodger. But if the aim of the game is procreation, babies have been made.
and their ability to move around is quite fascinating. You can in see there's literally hundreds of them in that there's jar hundreds. there. These, oh my God. And they've so all many. come out of the, the cocoon there, the, 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 the egg sack. They're like tick-sized spiders, but they... Literally less than the size of a pinhead. And for them to travel around, it would take a a long time for them to walk. So what a lot of spider species do is they stick their little backside up into the air and spin out some web at that size. And then the wind or some heat from the ground will catch them and carry them off and they'll land and start up a new life. What clever creatures. And by the way, the web itself, very strong. Pound for pound, it's it's much, much stronger than even steel. Collie Edith, not freaking Oliver out at all. Former Pogues musician Kortje Reardon was something of a curious choice for the weekly food portrait. I really am just grateful for food. I'm grateful to be fed. I'm grateful to be somewhere. If my tummy's rumbling and I can get food, I'm just, whatever it is, I'll eat it and thank you. I'm a bit of a dustbin like that. <laughs> yeah, the bar is low. And about to get a whole lot lower. Grateful to be fed. So does that mean that you have kind of absented yourself from the kitchen? Do you do any cooking? Oh, don't. <laughs> Why would I? Life's too short to cook. <laughs> because you might enjoy it because it's therapeutic. Listen, because... mate, somebody invented the toaster and that's my life's sources. You can have beans on toast. You can have eggs on toast. You can have Marmite on toast, or cheese on toast. Why would you need to cook? But disdainful of your shavings, your drizzles and your foams, she did, however, have some pretty high standards when it came to the setting for her food. Are there highlights? Are there food favourites? My absolute pinnacle of my experiences in life, that the ones that are going to flash before my eyes when I'm dying, I hope, will be Ethiopia. Anywhere that has a deep music and a deep food culture combined is just, that just touches all the circuits in my brain. It makes me so happy. Ethiopian food is just bliss. There's a restaurant by Mulligans in Dublin called, I think it's called Gersha, which is what they call it in Ethiopia when you feed people, like literally you'll take a bit of food and feed someone. It's the supreme gesture of hospitality and it's a mostly vegetarian cuisine and I went and toured all around Ethiopia visiting and it was around Easter, so it was Lent for them, so it was all vegetarian. So there was And where does the music come into it? Is there live music Ethiopia, in most places? Just everywhere. It's everywhere. Ethiopian music is everywhere. They've got these twin strands and it's like Ireland. They have trads. Mm. They have the ancient instruments. And then they've got this amazing 70s burst of music where they started getting James Brown records and they started putting brass instruments into funk and jazz bands. You know, it was like the military music academy musicians. And this is the backdrop to all of your meals. Every meal you have, you're either going to hear the trad or the jazz stuff or the modern musicians And you know what's really nice? To hear a positive story about food coming from the horse. Of Africa yeah. from Ethiopia because that's not something you hear about too often, is it's it? It's really? not, but you know, when you're a musician, you're kind of coming in from the bottom, you're coming in at the roots, and, and that's where the goodness is. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. <laughs>